Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Elie Wiesel once said, I love the prophets because of their involvement in society. Prophets never, never took the side of power. They always opposed power. Today, Elie Wiesel reflects on the ancient masters. You are here. This is is Rewrite Radio. Radio, This is Rewrite Radio. (laughs) This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. My name is Scott Jose, and I teach at Calvin Theological Seminary, direct the Center for Excellence in Preaching, and chair the advisory group for the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. On this episode of Rewrite Radio, we go back to the first night of festival 1998 and Nobel Prize-winning writer Elie Wiesel, who offers powerful and prophetic words, as applicable today as they were then. The author of over 60 books, Elie Wiesel was born in what is now Romania. At 15, he was deported to Auschwitz. By the time of liberation in 1945, Wiesel had lost his mother, his father, and his younger sister. After the war, he became a journalist, and out of an interview, he was persuaded to write what would become his memoir, Night, now translated into more than 30 languages. Wiesel went on to a much-lauded career as writer, professor, and humanitarian. In 1978, President Carter named Wiesel as chairman of the President's Commission on the Holocaust, and in 1980, Wiesel was the founding chairman of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council. Together with his wife, he established the Elie Wiesel Foundation for Humanity. His works included fiction and nonfiction, including A Beggar in Jerusalem, The Testament, The Fifth Son, All Rivers Run to the Sea, and The Sea is Never Too Full. For his literary and human rights activities, he has received numerous awards, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the U.S. Congressional Gold Medal, the National Humanities Medal, the Medal of Liberty, and the rank of Grand Croix in the French Legion of Honor. In 1986, Wiesel won the Nobel Prize for Peace. He died in 2016. Here, from 1998, is Elie Wiesel, introduced by Gary Schmidt. Good evening. Once upon a time, there was a king who knew that the next harvest would be cursed. Whosoever would eat from it would go mad. And so he ordered an enormous granary built and stored there all that remained from the last crop. He entrusted the key to his friend. This is what he told him. When my subjects and their king will have been struck with madness, you alone may enter the storehouse and eat uncontaminated food. Thus, you will escape the malediction. But in exchange, your mission will be to cover the earth, 
going from country to country, from town to town, from one street to another, from one man to another, telling tales, ours. And you will shout, you will shout with all your might, for the love of God, good people, for the love of God, do not forget what is at stake is your life. What is at stake is your survival. Do not forget. Do not forget. I tell you this story from the work of Elie Wiesel to suggest why it is that over 2,000 people have gathered here tonight. We gather to hear a man of extraordinary accomplishment. We gather to hear the author of dozens of books, books such as Night, Dawn, and Day, books whose searing images and voice have defined for many of us the meaning of the Holocaust. We gather to hear the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, the Freedom Cup Award, the Profiles of Courage Award, the Human Rights Law Award, the American Liberties Medallion, and many others that could be listed. We gather to hear the chairman of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, and no one who has been to that memorial is unaffected by this man's life. We gather to hear a witness. The Nobel Prize Committee called him a messenger to mankind. His is one of the prophetic voices of the century, and we have gathered here tonight, above all things, to be reminded by that prophetic voice. In the midst of pain that can murder a faith, we are reminded of our own need to be human. What is at stake is your life. What is at stake is your survival. Do not forget, do not forget. Ladies and gentlemen, Elie Wiesel. Mr. President, Dr. Schmidt, fellow writers, distinguished members of the faculties, students, friends, topic that you are dealing with, of course, is close to my heart. It deals with faith and it deals with writing. Is there a combination between the two? Is there a conflict between the two? Does one exclude the other? Does one necessarily, inevitably, confirm the other? Of course, because we live in a certain age, and because of our own experiences, there are certain problems that are uniquely our own. You will write, those of you who begin, and you will become famous, hopefully, or not, and you will uh, face many strange situations. And I will tell you a story, 
a funny story that happened to me on my way to Calvin College. <laughs> it, it happened actually a few weeks ago. I was walking in New York in the street, thinking about probably this, the next lecture I was supposed to give. And a very beautiful young woman, uh, I saw her come across. She was so beautiful. And she smiled at me. I was proud. She wasn't alone. Can I do? <laughs> and then I heard her say to her boyfriend, or her friend, or her husband, I think she says it's Elie Wiesel. Then I felt proud. She recognized me, at least. But then he said, are you sure? So she ran back, looked at me, went back to her boyfriend and said, it's not him. <laughs> As a writer, what do you do then? <laughs> Only one thing. You make a story out of it. <laughs> this is what writers do. This is what you will do. You will make stories of things that happen to you and things that don't. It should. Now, in truth, the question is a very important question. If it's not me, who is it? <laughs> Even more important, if it's not me, who am I? But that, of course, is a subject for philosophers and theologians. Who am I? Obviously, this is the question that accompanies us from birth to death. We always want to know who we are, and we hope that we are authentically who we are, which means I do not want to live someone else's life. I want to live my own life. And I would like to fulfill it simply because of what I am, or what I want to be. So in, in a few words, just a preliminary remark, I hope all of you know that I am the son of, a Jew, of the Jewish people. I consider myself, therefore, Jewish, just as you consider yourself whatever you are, Calvinist or Catholics or Buddhist or Muslims. Uh, from within your tradition, you would like to be a total human being, as I want to be, from within my tradition, a total human being. It means I am Jewish in whatever I'm doing. That means that I do not believe and in my adult life, I never believed that to be Jewish is to say that the Jewish people are superior to any other people or inferior. I do not believe that the Jewish religion is superior to other religions or inferior. I believe simply that because I am Jewish, it is for me the only way to live my life honestly, intellectually and religiously, if I am religious and I am. It is the only way for me to give something to those who are not. But that statement can be made by anyone who is not Jewish. The Catholic, the Protestant, the Buddhist, the Muslim, or the agnostic, or even the atheist. The only prerequisite should be, therefore, what we call, for better of a, of a, of a word, the tolerance. That means I'm supposed to believe that you have exactly the same right to say what I'm saying. 
for yourselves. Except I don't like the word tolerance. I used to, because I don't like the opposite, intolerance. But nevertheless, tolerance, as you know from your English literature studies, has a connotation of condescendence. I tolerate pain, I tolerate fatigue, I tolerate dissent. No. I prefer the word respect. Absolutely, I like the word respect. So at the basis, we must always say there should be respect. As writers, we must respect other writers, which is rare. As respect, we must surely respect our inspiration. We all need inspiration for our writing. As writers, we must respect our readers. Just as we are told, the great philosopher Maimonides said, that masters are duty-bound to respect their disciples, just as disciples are duty-bound to respect their masters. So if the title has been given to me, what ancient masters can teach our generation is precisely that, respect. We must respect the topic, the subject matter. We must respect those who deal with the same topic and the same subject matter. And therefore, for instance, I love libraries, not only because there are books in the libraries, and what would I do if there were no libraries, but in the library, opponents who during their lives would fight fiercely with one another, now they live in peace on the bookshelf, you know. <laughs> but they talk to one another, they still talk to one another, and they will talk to one another until the end of all times. Now, I would like to tell you something which to you, the Calvin College, I think may be important. My inspiration in writing comes, of course, from many sources. The most secular sources is what I studied when I was in the Sorbonne in Paris, and which I, be I began studying and continue to this day from other writers, which means Socrates, Plato for me is very important. It is in literature, Dostoevsky, Kafka, the usual, uh, Thomas Mann, but mainly, mainly, my influence comes from the original sources, from the Bible and its commentaries. This is what I studied when I was young, when I was from my childhood on. And I never stopped studying. I still continue studying these texts literally every single day. And I got, get from them so much. Let me give you an example. I just told you the first anecdote, which is a true anecdote, about who, who am I? Now, what is the first question in the Bible? All of you have studied, I'm told by your president, all of you have studied the Bible. What is the first question in the Bible? Logically, it should be Adam saying many things. God, who are you? Or, who am I? Or at least he could say, why? Why did you create me? Or he could say, this is my wife. <laughs> but it ain't so. The first question is God who is asking. When is he asking? Whom is he asking? Adam fled from God's sight. And in the Bible, in the Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, God says to him, the Hebrew word is so beautiful, Ayeka. Where are you? Where are thou? Now, in the 19th century, a very great Hasidic master, 
the founder of a school of Lubavitch. He was called the author of the Tanya, a famous book of philosophy. And he was in jail in Petersburg. It so happens that the warden of that jail was a biblical scholar. He heard that he had a famous rabbi as a prisoner, an inmate. He came to see him. He said, Rabbi, I would like to speak to you about the Bible. He said, with pleasure. What is it? He said, I have a question. Go ahead. He said, it's written in the Bible that God asked Adam, where are you? Is it conceivable that God didn't know where Adam was? And he said, oh, God knew. Adam did not. <laughs> well, isn't this something which is so relevant to our generation, to all generations, especially to ours. Where are we? Do we know where we are? We go everywhere, and we don't know where we are. And wherever we go, we go very fast. We go to the moon, we go to space, we go deep in the ocean. We are everywhere except where we are not. <laughs> and we want to be everywhere, fast. We don't even know why. What are we doing in space? I, I, believe me, I don't know. <laughs> now, what is it that we know so much about outer space that we don't know what's happening in the heart of our neighbor? So where are we? Where are we, in, not only in history, where are we in our life? Where am I now in my life? What am I doing with it? Here I would say, of course, that I believe that I can define myself not in relation to myself, but in relation to you. Which means I need what we say, the other. Levinas would say the other. I need the other to know who I am. I, therefore, Descartes was wrong, but he said, I think, therefore I am. No. You are, therefore I am. I am because you are. Which means if I can define my relationship to you, then I can somehow find a way to myself. The only way for me to redeem myself is through you. I would even say the only way for me to God is through you. The bridge between the individual and God is through the other person. Whoever that other person is, it is the other person. Which means I am where you are. Second, we have so many great stories in the Bible, you know, that I sometimes, as a writer, I've written so many books. And, you know, King Solomon, who wrote the Ecclesiast, he said at the end of the Ecclesiast, he said that well, the last curse will be there will be too many books. He was so clever, really. <laughs> Why he was so clever? He was called the wisest of all kings, you know, and, and yet we know that he had a thousand wives. Maybe it was easier to have a thousand than one, but I don't, but, but the wisest of all kings, he had a thousand. No. So, listen, the next story in the Bible is what? It's about Adam and Eve are married, and the commentaries are very beautiful. There is a wedding in, the, in heaven, and you know, God performs a ceremony. Then they have children, Cain and Abel. The most sordid, the most horrible, the most terrifying story of the Bible is that Cain and Abel, two brothers, that's all. The whole world has four human beings, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. 
And what happens? Cain and Abel, because of something that, that they did, like Cain killed Abel. Now, first of all, where were the parents? Weren't they supposed to educate their children? Did, why couldn't they say, I know, of course, Cain was, and Abel were quarreling because Abel brought uh, offerings to God, which God accepted. Cain brought, he wasn't accepted. Okay, they were quarreling, brothers quarreled. We know that. But they didn't. Why didn't they say to the parents, children, I have a headache, stop it? You know. <laughs> they could have said that and stopped the whole business. Cain killed Abel. Why? What is it there to teach us? And of course we know what it's teaching us. Because the history of humankind, the recorded history, to this day is what is happening between what was happening Cain and Abel. That brothers, brothers, can become enemies of one another, and one becoming the victim and or the assassin of the other. But more important is the lesson that we don't remember that whoever kills, kills his brother. And then we have you know, all the stories that any novelist, you know, novelists should know, those of you who are writing novels or want to write novels, there are very few topics in literature, very few ur topics. Uh, how many, how many uh, uh, tragedies of Romeo and Juliet can there be? And, and how, how many uh, s tragedies written by Sophocles can be rewritten by others? There are very few, but they all are in the Bible. Next would be, for instance, something which always, always troubles me, still troubles me. It's Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, after all, our forefather, right? And Isaac, his son. Uh, Abraham was never home. He was a statesman. He was a God's politician. He was traveling all over the world, fighting with kings, converting nations. I imagine Isaac, the son, feeling frustrated. He wanted some, as we call today, a bonding experience with his father. <laughs> but his father was never home. So Isaac was Sarah's son. And he was waiting for the opportunity. One day he wants to be alone with his father. Finally the day comes. They arrive, and Abraham wakes him up in the morning. And it, it's clear, the Talmud says, that while Sarah was asleep, because Sarah would never have allowed her son to go with, to do, you know what. So, Isaac is happy. He's going to be alone with his father and for three days and three nights they are alone. They don't talk, except a few words. And all of a sudden, Isaac sees himself bound to the altar, with his father with a knife in his hand. So I imagine Isaac must be the most tragic character in the Bible. The most tragic character. Uh, being traumatized by what he saw, his father with a knife. And by the way, Rembrandt, who is also fascinated with this, with this scene, with this subject, I went to Amsterdam just to see Rembrandt's uh, work on I I Abraham and Isaac. And it's very interesting. His drawings, which are preparation for the, for the final picture, 
the drawings go through a certain metamorphosis, an evolution. First, you see Isaac, poor Isaac on the altar, and Abraham with a fierce, savage look in his eyes, with a knife in his hand. Slowly, slowly, the expression of the father becomes softer. And at the end of the, the last drawing, which is the picture, the knife is on the ground, and father and son embrace. Yes, but what about before? So you see, stories about this in the Bible are so many about this, about any other situation. Take, for instance, the, the story of Sodom. Take Noah, before that, Noah. You know, Noah, uh, Uncle Noah. Uncle Noah, who uh, is in the Bible said he's a righteous man, a good man, everything, and uh, then God decides to destroy the world. And he tells Noah, build an ark. I must tell you, I don't like Noah. Because he's too complacent. Whatever God says, he does. God says, build an ark, he builds an ark. God says, bring in everybody in the ark. Everybody. Forty days. Afterwards, God says, leave the ark. He leaves the ark. Really? Why didn't he argue with God? God is there to be argued with, at least in my tradition. God says, go, he should say, why? <laughs> it's perfect, believe me, in my tradition, it's perfectly valid. God, he, if he were to say, Mr. God, what are you doing? You are angry with the world, what about the children? They are innocent. He didn't argue, so I don't like him. There is only one thing which goes to his defense. Uh, God cleverly gave him a private circus on the ark. All the animals were there represented. So he was so busy with the animals that, you know, they go to circus, what are, what are you thinking about? The circus. But the world was destroyed. Then Noah leaves the ark. What does he do? He brings an offering to God, the least he can do after all. He survived the greatest cataclysm in history. And then he plants a vineyard. Then we are told God shows him the rainbow. At that time it had no political connotation. And, and God says to him, I promise you I will never destroy the world with floods. When I read it, I felt happy. Now I can sleep quietly. God said so. But, you know, to read an ancient text is to reread the ancient text. You must resist the text. Once you resist the text, you realize there are problems with it. God says, I will not destroy with floods. Why this little bit floods? Why didn't this simply, I promise you, I will not destroy the world? Now we know, after all, that the world may be destroyed not with water, but with fire. The nuclear fire. Why didn't God say that? But then I understood something else. God said, I will not destroy the world. Which means if the world is to be destroyed, it's because you will destroy it. That is the warning and that is the lesson. For all times and especially for ours. In other words, we are responsible for our work. And that goes for writers even more so. 
Writers are teachers. Writers are creators. In the writer's creation, there must be some ethical dimension saying that whoever will read this story somehow will be affected by it and somehow the reader will become closer to another reader and to other people who have not read. After all, how many people can read the same story? But there must be an ethical dimension. There must be a sense of responsibility. I would go very far and I would tell you that I feel responsible not only for what I write, but also for the way you interpret my writing. And if you interpret my writing in a way which I don't like, it's my fault, not yours. I should have done better. I feel responsible, and the responsibility goes very far. Now, problems. Of course we have problems. When I say human responsibility and morality, what about those writers who were irresponsible? After all, writing, we may say, art is a way of rebellion. You know, André Malraux, the great French novelist, said that uh, art is a way of correcting injustices. Uh, it may be that goes for painting, for sculpture, for literature, or for, for music. We want to correct the injustice. The painter says to God, this is the way you do it. No, I prefer like this. And I show you my way. It's okay. What about those, therefore, who believe that to be, to be a writer means not to be responsible, but to be irresponsible? Which means to go against authority, always against the establishment, against certainties, against what has already been established, accepted, and received as a total commandment that cannot be changed. Why not? It's possible. Many writers are rebels and should be rebels. Well, is it always good? Of course. We can never make generalities and we can never say generalizations. But the fact is, one thing should be always a component, the ethical component, that I am doing it to improve the human condition. And in this case, again, we've placed ourselves in the footsteps or in the context of prophetic writing. I'm a great reader of the prophets. I love the prophets. I love them because of their involvement in society. Prophets never, never took the side of power. They always opposed power. Prophets never, never took the side of the wealthy. They took the side of the poor, of the dispossessed of the sick, of the children, of the orphans, of the widows. The prophets were there to be present to people who had no one to help them when they needed help. No one who were alone and needed a presence. The prophet was the presence. Furthermore, their language, my God, you read Isaiah. Isaiah was called the prince of the prophets because not only was he of the prince of a royal family, but his style is a royal style, it's princely style. You read Jeremiah, the only prophet who had foreseen the tragedy, who lived the tragedy, and told the story of the tragedy. 
the greatness of Jagamaya. Now, they were all political personalities, but what remained? Not their politics, their poetry. Poetry is stronger than politics. Their poetry is what made them immortal. And so, of course, we think of them as examples, as role models, you would say today. What about great writers who were, frankly, bad human beings, evil people? Take, for instance, in France, we had a novelist called Céline. Louis-Ferdinand de Touche or Céline. He, in the 30s, stunned the French literary world with a novel called Voyage to the End of Night. It's a great novel. Horrible, but great. Right? Because he, he invented a new cadence, a new style. And yet that man was a vicious racist, a vicious anti-Semite. So how is it possible? How can I combine the word racist with the word great? I naively would believe that a great writer or a great artist or a great human being or a great politician cannot be a racist. Racism is stupid. Racism makes people stupid. Not only ugly, but stupid. To say that some people are superior or inferior because of the color of their skin or their faith, or their racial origin, or their ethnic origin, is stupid. He was a great writer and a horrible anti-Semite. In America, we had a great poet, Ezra Pound. Again, very great, the Cantos, my God. You know, Pound was in Italy during the war. He made broadcasts against America, against his own country, for racism. And after the war, he was saved only because his friends intervened and they declared him somehow insane. But how is that possible? Well, maybe we should say that the rule confirms, that the exception confirms the rule. As a rule, I would believe that the ethical dimension is important. We have seen it in two, in two areas. When communism became the religion of the state religion in Russia, great literature disappeared. The Dostoevskys were dead, Tolstoys were dead, and those who were communists gave very bad literature. It was political literature, it had nothing to do with greatness, just political ideas. It was, frankly, you read them today, you realize it's unworthy of your time even. It's so bad. And that is a consolation for us. That means you cannot write great poetry, you cannot write great literature in such a situation when you are a communist, which means you are actually substituting, substituting the, the false perception of truth to truth. But the same thing was in Germany, when the great writers left Germany and exiled themselves to America, to Europe before Europe was occupied, or, or to Palestine, which later became Israel. In other words, literature cannot live in peace with dictatorship and with a religion of hate.
Is it true? Always has been, except in in regime under regimes of dictatorship, there was great literature, but they were all clandestine. All were clandestine. They had why? That's when they had to rebel against. When it meant a lot to write something true, and there you will see the real greatness of literature meant life and death. To have written a line that displeased the ruler meant not only imprisonment but death. Strangely enough, you may turn it around and say, "Look how happy those people are. Those dictators took literature seriously." to the point that they would kill the author for writing something. In America, what could happen to you or in Norway or anywhere? At worst, you get a bad review. Okay, all right. You'll survive it. But in Russia, in, under Stalin, immediately to jail. And not only that, you know, Stalin would call up at night, because he always called up at night, he would call up at night. Once he did call up Boris Pasternak. You know, one who wrote Dr. Zhivago got the Nobel Prize. He called, Stalin called him up and said, what do you think of Osip Mandelstam, who was a very great poet. Very great poet. And, and, and he was afraid, he didn't know what to say. Maybe Stalin doesn't like a Mandelstam, so he would endanger himself, so he somehow said half yes, half no. Nadezhda Mandelstam never forgave him for that. But the fact is, Stalin used to call people who wrote, because he read their poetry. Their poetry was so great that the sum is that made them more famous than all the famous people in the world. There is a marvelous story about the same Pasternak. Pasternak was a great translator. That's how he made his living. But he also wrote poetry. But in sum is that, clandestinely. And the story is a true story again. That once he had a public reading and he read from the stage his own poetry. And at one point he had a blank. He forgot the line, at which point 3,000 people whispered the line. <laughs> now, what does it really mean? It means that whatever you do when you are a writer, you should know that there are always 3,000 people, potential readers, who will remember the line that you forget. And here we touch on a, an important element in writing, and the element is memory. You, in order to write, must remember. Not only remember what happened to you, but what happened to others, who are your contemporaries or your peers, or even those who, had, who lived centuries and centuries before you. The other word for it is simply the envelopment of memory. Memory must be inclusive rather than exclusive. But it's not easy. What about the events that you forgot? What about events that history did not record? We didn't have CNN everywhere. There were certain events that developed, that occurred without any survivor being there to tell the tale. You know, in the book of Job, which is so I think one of the greatest books, really, Book of Job. There are, in the beginning, you remember, Job and Mrs. Job, after all, we forget that he had a wife. 
it's always my, 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 my complaint about Job is that whatever happened to him happened to her. His children were lost. They were her children too. His fortune was taken away. It was hers too. Everything. And yet the, the book is about him, not her. Where was she? Mrs. Job? And I wanted to write really. I, I, once I, I gave lessons on Job with a friend of mine you know, on French television. Only in France you can do that. Prime time. Sunday evening we gave Sunday evening we gave every Sunday lectures on Job, the book of Job. And once I I said that, I said I would like somebody to write a book about Mrs. Job. And you know, two or three years ago I got a uh, a book a, and a letter from a Lebanese poetess and she sent me the book. She said, I heard your request and here is the book. And she wrote a book about Mrs. Job. But anyway, the book of Job at the beginning is what? They were, sit, they were at the table having dinner and a messenger came and said, I was with your oldest son and he had a party and the roof fell down. I alone escaped to come and tell the tale. Hardly had he finished, another one came. And I was with your other son, with his shepherds. They all were killed. I alone escaped to come and tell the tale. It goes on and on. It's very beautiful because they all have the same line. I alone escaped to come and tell the tale. And people think that this is a tragedy. This is also comfort. There was somebody to tell the tale. What about those events that are not told? because nobody was there to tell the tale. What about books that were forgotten? We, are, we know that Isaiah wrote a biography of King Ezekiel's lost. We don't know where it is. I cannot tell you how sorry I am. I so want to see how he dealt with biography. Isaiah. Euripides. You study Euripides. His great plays. But tell me, do you know how many plays of his were lost? Where are they? However, I believe that even if they are lost in history, they remain in memory. It's my mystical belief that memory is stronger than history. That somehow it's here. And who knows, maybe one day we will know even what we don't know now. An example. In Jerusalem, the Hebrew University, years and years ago, there was a professor who taught the Apocrypha. You know the books of Apocrypha? They are very beautiful. They are like the Ecclesiastes. They are like the Proverbs. They are very beautiful. And yet they were not included in the canon. Why weren't they included? The reason is, if you study them well, it's because they have no way out. It's total despair. And those sages who composed the canon didn't want to give the reader such a despairing book. Only for that reason. Otherwise, they are so beautiful, poetically, philosophically, that they deserve to be in the canon. Too despairing. So this professor was teaching one of the books, I think it was uh, Ben Sira or Baruch Four. And at one point, he says to his students, you see, what he thought should be the three missing lines. Many years later, in the manuscript Death Scrolls of Qumran, they discovered many, many manuscripts, including that one. 
And when the manuscripts were decoded, they found the three missing lines. If ever I was envious of a professor, that's what I was envious. <laughs> so who knows, maybe those stories too, remember in our hidden scrolls, if we want to remember. And here, of course, we come to a subject which is topical and so close to us and so difficult. I have written many books, more than 40. Very few deal with what I consider to be the tragic, the most tragic chapter, not only in my people's history, but in human history. Because I also believe that whatever happens to one people affects all others. We cannot say that human beings now are islands. They never were. Whatever happens to one community affects all communities. If one is persecuted, all suffer. If one is humiliated, all feel the pain and the anguish. And so I feel the tragedy that struck my people, of course, struck humankind. I have written little about it because I felt, I still feel, that I lack the language. There comes a moment when there is no language. And I had no language for it. Those of you who are kind enough, let's say, to read my first text, night. No, I, I was waiting 10 years before I thought I could find the words. And that night, when I wrote the first manuscript, it had 864 pages. And I began condensing and condensing. And uh, as you know, it came down to 120 or something. Why? I, I didn't want to to use the wrong words. I feel that somehow, in this case, the enemy, who is the enemy of all our peoples, the enemy managed to push, who push his experience, his evil experience, to the limit of language and beyond. And therefore, he deprived us of the words to describe what he has done to us. And we needed new words. And, uh, you know, I, I spoke to a great woman poetess, Nellie Zacks. She got the Nobel Prize together with Agnon in 1966. She wrote in German. She escaped from Berlin to Stockholm at the beginning of the war. And she told me, she said, that at one point she couldn't use her language because every word meant something else. As a result, very few people know that, she needed therapy. She entered an institution where she was treated for mental disease. Everything was broken down. She had no words, and yet she wrote great poems. Ailey or the Chimneys, great poems. Paul Celan, another German poet, Yiddish-Jewish poet from Romania who lived in France, committed suicide. Strangely enough, maybe you don't 
those of you who study or who write, who write and who will write, you should know that. That of all the social spheres that vanished in what we call so poorly the Holocaust, one category suffered more than all, and that was the writers. More writers committed suicide than musicians, uh, professors of philosophy, or business, or economists, or anything. Writers, why writers? And I have known some. And it, it, it bothered me, it troubled me, it anguished me for so long that finally I found a student of mine, and she, was, she did her doctoral dissertation under my direction. There were eight writers who committed suicide. Uh, Primo Levi, for instance. All of you have read Primo Levi, right? Primo Levi and I were very, very close friends. We were in the same camp, in the same barracks. Except he was older, and he was already a respected chemist, and I was nothing. But after, when we met after the war, we reconstructed everything, and our conversations were always fascinating, pained. Because the only disagreement we had, actually, the major disagreement, we had two, the major disagreement was about God. He was an agnostic, and therefore for him God wasn't a problem. He mentioned it a few times, but not really. He mentions only my discussions with him. For me, God is a problem. I still, I still don't understand God's place in, in all that. In one of my plays, I have one character only saying one thing, and God in all that, and God in all that. Again, I repeat to you, my good friends from Calvin, because you should know that my religion allows me to say that, because I, I, I only follow in the footsteps of my predecessors. Moses said it, Abraham said it, in the Talmud it's full of these things. We, we, we say these things. We may say it if we do it on behalf of his creation. I may say to God, God, creator of the world, on behalf of your world, I ask you this question. It's God's prerogative not to answer me, which he does. He doesn't answer. Or maybe he does, and I don't understand his language. It's, by the way, I mean it seriously. It's also possible. But the fact is, I may ask this question. Primo Levi, he said, for him, God, it's not a problem. And the main thing is, what society, he was very leftist, almost communist. The other one was he was too tough on the survivors. He said that all, every survivor was guilty, which I believe was wrong. Uh, simply for surviving? No. What could they have done? There were children who didn't do anything bad. Most of the people didn't do anything bad. How many couples were there? But otherwise, Primo and I were, of course, very close. And uh, one day he called me, and I felt in his voice. I was in New York. I felt in his voice something. I felt it. I said, Primo, hang up. Go to the airport. There, a, a ticket will be waiting for you. I'll wait for you at the airport in New York, and we'll spend a week together. And he said something, you know, which when you study Greek tragedy, you always stumble upon these two words, and they mean that it's tragedy. He said, it's too late. When you hear these two words, it's tragedy. And Greek tragedy is what? You know, every, the, moment, the moment the hero met 
the gods is too late. There's no way back. I had a friend in France called Piotr Ravitch. Piotr Ravitch was a very great writer. He wrote a book called The Blood from the Sky. If you find it in the library, read it. Suicide. Like Primo Levi. Bruno Bettelheim, he was one year in, in Buchenwald. Suicide. There was a woman in, in Israel. Old, she came to see me, an old woman, marvelous woman. She lost her two sons in the Independence War, 48. And since then, she gave her life to, to young people. And one day she came into a kibbutz where the people in that kibbutz came from my region in Transylvania. And that's why she came to see me. She said, look, I, 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 I uh, recorded her stories and I would like to write a preface, which I, of course I did. And for the first time she was exposed to those stories. She, a 70-year-old lady, jumped from eighth floor, suicide. There were so many. Tadeusz Borowski, a non-Jew, a Christian in, uh, in Poland, suicide. There were so many. Why? Why writers? And of course, at least one reason. I don't know the real reason. One never knows the real reason for suicide. I gave once a course on suicide. It was one of the most despairing courses I had given. At, at, at my university. Uh, the, the topic was suicide either as in, in literature or in the author. Either the author committed suicide or there was somebody in the book who committed suicide. And it was you know, to bring it out into the open and, and show my students the way out, out, always out, that it's not the end, it shouldn't be the end. Nothing is the end except death itself and that therefore cannot not be taken as an option. Well, one of the reasons for writers may be that simply what does a writer have if not words? And if words do not convey what we want to say, then how can I go on? What else do I have? And I see, look, in truth, and I see the world around us, I am often close to despair. I wouldn't commit suicide, don't worry, but, I, but I'm desperate. What else can we do? We wanted so much to change the world. We were, we, strangely enough, in 1945, I want you to know, we uh, were paradoxically very optimistic. Of course, we were in mourning. But nevertheless, we saw that at least one thing, the world will have learned the lesson that what happened before cannot happen again. That racism, racism is wrong, is evil. Hatred is evil. That children cannot starve to death in a society which respects itself. That wars are grotesque. That bloodshed cannot be an acceptable means of survival. It cannot. I, tell, I swear to you, I, I, I felt it then. If anyone had told me that I will have to fight anti-Semitism again, I wouldn't have believed it. If anyone had told me that I will have to fight for children to live, I tell you, I wouldn't have believed it. And now, do you know that while we are talking here, every minute a child dies somewhere of hunger or disease? Every minute! So, and then look, the Cain and Abel story, Ireland goes on.
Kosovoj, Newtret, after Bosnia, and Rwanda, and so many other places that we don't even know about. Which means our testimony has not been received. If I believe, and I do believe, that the writer is, and this is the last definition I give of the writer, the writer is a witness. That we give testimony. We are those who say, look, this is what happened. And we were there. We saw it. We imagined it. We remember it. And if our testimony is not received, then why give testimony? In the beginning, the first years, the survivors who came back, they wanted to speak and tell the story. But everywhere, people said, please, no, don't, 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 re don't, don't remember these things. It's too sad. It's too sad. Forget, turn the page. So they turned the page, and therefore they didn't speak. Now, I have, of the 41 books, maybe three, four, maybe five, deal with the subject. All the other books are about the Bible and mysticism and, and Talmud and Hasidism and everything but that story. Maybe I was wrong, maybe I should have done nothing else but tell that story. But I'm afraid, I still am afraid that I haven't even begun, that one day I should begin. Now, in conclusion, what will happen to you to are here, these 1,300 men and women who came from all over to study writing? You will become writers, obviously. You are here, and I'm sure you will. Some of you will write plays, poetry, essays, philosophical discourses. Remember one thing. Remember what happened, what happened to me. When I published Night in Paris, it was impossible to get a publisher, so don't be depressed if you don't get publishers right away. It went, my, although François Mauriac, who was my great protector, or the great Catholic Nobel Prize winning author, he was my great protector. And he personally brought my book to the publishers. They all rejected it until he found a small publisher in Paris. And that publisher was the publisher of Beckett but very small, and he took it, published it. And my that publisher says to me, you know, Sam, Samuel Beckett wants to meet you. I was so happy. After all, you know, Beckett. I admired Beckett from Godot, who, who doesn't admire Beckett. And that, no, by the way, nobody did at that time. <laughs> you should know, if you read the reviews that he got for, for Godot, you wouldn't believe it. They all massacred the man. It was total massacre. But I admired him. And uh, usually, what I, I, I am terribly conscious of other people's time. I, I, I prefer to wait rather than people should wait for me. So I, we had an 11 o'clock uh, meeting date in a cafe in Paris called Chez Francis. It's near the Eiffel Tower, Alma Marceau. I came there at 10.30 to be there. Not to be late. Maybe, maybe there'll be a flood and maybe a strike, all of the strikes, and I wouldn't be able to come at 11 o'clock. So I want to be there, sure. I came at 10.30. 10.45, 10.50, 10.50, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55, 10.55
I was sitting at the terrace outside, didn't come. 11.15, 11.30, didn't come. 11.45, I said, maybe something happened to him. And I was looking at my watch. At which point, as looking at my watch, I saw in the other corner of the terrace, there was a man also looking at his watch. <laughs> he had done the same thing. So I ran to him, and we were there together for at least a half hour without saying a word. But it was the beginning of a long conversation that we had, of a good, good, a very good link that we created between man and man, between writer and writer, between two searching spirits. And just before we said goodbye to each other, he said to me, you know, he said, I, last week I found a manuscript of my book called Moloi Meur, When Moloi Dies. And I realized that the manuscript had the motto which was omitted for strange reasons from the printed version. And the motto is En désespoir de cause, which means in desperation. Which means, what else can I do? There are so many things to do in the world. So many orphans that need consolation. So many sick that need comfort. Something. What can I do? But write. So I write. Now this is why you should write on this part of course. Because only when you can do nothing else. My advice to the writer in you is if you can live a life without writing, don't. Why write? It's, believe me, it's not worth it. The agony that you will go through while writing the book, and then while rewriting the book, they will make, make, make you rewrite the book ten times, and in parentheses, don't accept the editor's things. It's your book, not the editor's. But they will try to make you rewrite it. And then once the book is out, they will make you go around, around the talk shows, which is a curse of literature. You know, literally. You've never seen me on the talk shows. I wouldn't go near them. But they will try publicity. Come on. It's not worth it. Do something else. Write only if you feel you can do nothing else. Only in writing will you fulfill yourselves. You can be only because of the reader who will read your book. Now, the second advice I'm giving you is only write books that no one else can write but you. But I'm sure since you are here, I'm sure that one of these years there will be 1,300 more books in the market. And for the future readers of yours, may I say thank you. We honor the memory of Elie Wiesel and are deeply grateful for his words of challenge and encouragement. We gratefully acknowledge permission to rebroadcast this talk, copyright 1998 by Elie Wiesel, rebroadcast by permission of George Borchardt Incorporated on behalf of Elie Wiesel. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the Center and its signature event, 
the Festival of Faith and Writing online at ccfw.calvin.edu and festival.calvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us a review to help others find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for more from our archives.